Take your Bibles then, please, and turn to the book of Hosea. Uh, we're going to try to pick up from where we left off last time and give you a brief summary, and then we'll get into it. The book of Hosea. Now, this is a very uh, unique book. God chooses a family, a prophet, uh, who was told to marry a woman who would reflect the same level of purity and devotion that Israel demonstrated toward God. Hosea's marriage would become a picture or paradigm for God's relationship with his people. And by looking at Hosea's unfaithful wife, Israel would see themselves and their relationship and their unfaithfulness to God. There's a lesson here, of course, for those of us who are married. And it is that our marriage today are also to reflect the relationship of Christ to his people, to his church. Husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And that was a sacrificial love. He gave himself for her, Ephesians 5. And wives, of course, are to show the same submissive and respect and loyal love to their husbands that the church is to show to Jesus Christ. Now we'll see that in this picture, this symbol in the life of Hosea, that the wife is the unfaithful one. The husband is the faithful one. He represents God, of course. Now let me say here for the record that God does not normally call Christian individuals to live a life like this. In other words, tell a Christian husband to marry someone and go through all these experiences. Because believe it or not, some wives actually use that as an illustration of how God can use them to bless the husband even though they're unfaithful. It's amazing how we can twist scriptures. But God chose this prophet and this particular family to illustrate his relationship to his people and his faithful love in spite of the unfaithfulness of the wife. Now, if you look at Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, you see the family here. The book of Hosea focuses upon God's loving faithfulness toward Israel in spite of her unfaithfulness toward him and the discipline she had to face as a result. Now, let me say this here. This is one of the elements that are normally left out when there's preaching or teaching on Hosea. Very little is said about the discipline for the unfaithful wife. God always judges or punishes, or discipline is probably the best word for Christians, unfaithfulness in a marriage. Always. And that truth is also demonstrated here. So don't let's lose sight of this fact. There is um, judgment and discipline for unfaithfulness in a marriage relationship. Now, in Hosea's case, he was called to play out the role of the Lord and his relationship to Israel. In other words, when you see what Hosea is doing, you have to see what God is doing in relationship to the people of Israel. In other words, Hosea was to be like God, and his wife would demonstrate the same unfaithfulness that Israel had demonstrated as well. But now, here are some of the parallels we see in the book. I'm reviewing a little what we did last time. You can see God's relationship to Israel. 
You see Hosea and Gomer's relationship as husband and wife. You see Christ and the church. You see husband and wife. These are all the parallels that are described in this story of Hosea and his family. And there's tremendous lessons here, and we can look at them from all of these perspectives. But in each case, the onus, the responsibility for faithfulness, for sacrifice, and the spirit of forgiveness lies with God, not with Israel. You have to see that. In other words, the responsibility for faithfulness is to be seen in God. And in case of the marriage relationship, in the husband. Hosea, not Goma. Christ, not the church. The husband, not the wife, is the one who is called upon in this story to show sacrificial love. All right? It's very important to see that. It is also clear that the demand for faithfulness on the part of Israel, or Goma, church and the wife. In other words, whereas sacrificial love is to be shown by the husband, the demand for faithfulness is placed upon Goma, and in the case of a husband and wife, the wife, and also in the case of Israel. Now, Hosea's portrayal did not end with his relationship with his wife. In other words, his portrayal of God. He was also instructed by God to give names to his and Gomer's children that would reflect their spiritual status as well. Let's look at these names again. In Hosea chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Jezreel, it says, And the Lord said to him, that's Hosea, Name him Jezreel. This is the first child, and this child belongs to Gomer and to Hosea. Name him Jezreel. For yet a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it will come about on that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. This is a statement of judgment. And the name of their first child was to be a reminder of this great evil that had taken place in Israel's political history. The evil took place at Jezreel. This is a bit like naming, as I mentioned last time, when Americans would name a child Alamo. You remember the fight that they had at Alamo and would not? And for an American to name the child Alamo, to remember Alamo in that fashion, of where there was such uh, devastation done, that's something similar to what Hosea is being asked to do here, to name their son after a great evil, a place where great evil was done. This is where Jehu assassinated Ahaziah, the king of Judah at that time, and Joram, the king of Israel. But he went on also to have murdered 70 other family members to assure that the kingdom would not be taken. And so Jezreel became a symbol of the place where God exercises judgment. Justice, but judgment. It is the place of judgment. We know it today by the name of one of its cities, Megiddo. It is in this city that God has given rise to the popular, has given the name Armageddon. Now, when you hear Armageddon, you know you're speaking about 
a place of judgment. But then Goma had another child, this time a girl. And Hosea had some doubts as to whether or not he was the father. We won't go into all of that, but he had some doubts. And God told him in verse 6 of chapter 1 to name him or her Lu, or rather Lo Ruhamah. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I shall ever forgive them. These are strong words. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. And so at God's direction, he named her Loru Hamah. But then it goes on. But let me just, before I move on to the next name, to give you the background of the name Loru Hamah. The Hebrew word name means compassion unloved or unpitied. The Lord was giving testimony that the northern kingdom would be given no relief, but that it would be destroyed, no freedom. On the other hand, future hope is offered to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, it's important to see the significance of this name. This implies that she would not enjoy her true father's love. She had no compassion, she was not loved, she was not pitied. Again, this name was symbolic of Israel's wandering from God's love and discipline that she would soon experience because of her unfaithfulness. But then Goma had a third child, whom God instructed to give another name, Lo-Ami. When she had, this is verses 8 and 9, when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo Amai, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. These are strong words of judgment here because of unfaithfulness here. Now, the Hebrew word for Amai means people. Hosea names this child not my people, or literally it means no kin of mine. That's what the word means, literally, no kin of mine. And so this is a striking rebuke here. The people of Israel had rightly thought of themselves as the people of God, but they had lost the right to consider themselves by that name anymore. The child, his name symbolized Israel's alienation from God because of this sin. But it also exposed Gomer's sinful behavior. The child that was born is not born in Hosea's house, but did not belong to him. And so by these three names, the Lord is telling the kingdom of Israel that judgment is upon the horizon and that they will soon be judged for their sins. Now at that time, there is given a promise of future hope. And you'll see this as another principle throughout. Wherever God pronounces judgment, he also interjects with grace, given an opportunity for forgiveness. Listen to his words then through Hosea now, again in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Why don't you read that, please? Verses 10 and 11. Yeah. The number of the sons of Israel will be like the sons of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And then you come out that in the place where you are set there, you are not my people. It will be said to them, 
You are the sons of the living God, and the sons of Judah, and the sons of Israel, who gathered together. They will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land of a great now, I want you to see the contrast here. The previous verses seemed as though that was the end. There was no opening for any kind of relief or escape from judgment. But now God seems to be reversing. And this is the truth here, that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And God says, hey, this is what will happen if you don't repent. But if you repent, there is blessings. And this is what is happening here. In other words, this is the promise given for future hope. It is clear that there will be in the future a restoration of the people of Israel, the people of God. There will be a restoration in spite of God's judgment. And this is an amazing prophecy here because believe it or not, they're talking about you and me as believers in Christ. Paul refers to this quotation in the book of Romans in the New Testament. This is what he says. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, speaking of Gentiles now, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Now notice this. And he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isn't that a great promise? That's Romans 9. Notice how Paul interprets this passage from Hosea. He points to the fulfillment of this in those whom God had called, not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. In other words, the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Hosea is seen in us, the church, the people of God. We have been given the title sons of the living God, when one time we had no relationship to him at all. Beautiful picture here. But now, there is in Hosea's writings a call for the recipients of his day to repent. That's always there. In the midst of judgment, God always gives an opportunity for repentance. Now, this is seen as we go into chapter 2, and I believe this is where we left off last time. Notice chapter 2, verse 1. And I say to your brothers, am I? And to your sisters, Ruhamah, contend with your mother. Contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And let her put... Now, let me say here, I won't go into this, but there's a big theological discussion as to if God really did divorce Israel. Because, for instance, stating here, I am not a husband, and uh, she is not my wife, and so on. But in fact, they were at that time. And God is just seem to be citing the extent where he could go, all right, if they continued in their sin. And this is important uh, here because you'll see that God received them all back again. God received them back and so on. 
But this is a strong message of judgment. Contend with your mother. Contend for she is not my wife. And I am not her husband. And let her put away a harlotry from her face. And her adultery from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness. Make her like desert land and slay her with thirst. These are awful words, aren't they? But this is God speaking to an unfaithful wife. Now, this is God speaking to a nation that has disobeyed him. And he's re, he is uh, comparing that all to a husband-wife relationship. And he's saying that his wife, Israel, had become a harlot, a prostitute, because she went after other lovers. Now notice in verse 2, God pleads with her in verse 2. But then he threatens her. In verse 3, he pleads with her in verse 2, and he threatens to disinherit her in verse 3. But now let's go on. Verse 4, also I will have no compassion on her children, because they are children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, my drink. She was going after lovers who could give her what she wanted. She ran after other lovers in spite of God pleading for her to come back. In spite of the threat of judgment, she still went after her lovers because they promised to lavish material things on her. Don't we do that as well as believers? We say Jesus Christ is our Lord. We say Jesus Christ is our husband, as the bride of Christ, of course. But yet, in order for us to get material things, sometimes we deny him by the way we live. We don't live pure lives. We don't live holy lives. That's going after other gods, gods of wealth, gods of mammon. And in the Old Testament, that was referred to as harlotry, prostitution. Because you're going after other lovers. Now you see, we don't like to think about things like that as a Christian. But that's how God thinks about it. Our unfaithfulness to him is seen to him in the same way that a wife would be unfaithful to a husband. Of course, vice versa. The husband being unfaithful to a wife. But in this situation, it is a wife. But now, let's move on. Verse 6, therefore, behold, I will hedge up her with thorns. Now, this is talking about his bride now. Because it's Israel. Hedge her up with thorns. What are thorns? Thorns are like barbed wire. God says, I'm going to put a barbed wire fence around her. So she can't go running off. This is discipline in the life of an unfaithful believer, we would say today. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find the pass. Notice how far God is going after this unfaithful bride to keep her. She wants to go after other lovers. He says, okay, you won't listen to me. I'm going to put a barbed wire fence around you. I'm going to build a wall so you won't go running after these false gods. And she will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. She will seek them, but will not find them. She will not be satisfied, in other words. She'll keep seeking, but there'll be no satisfaction. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it is better for me then than now. 
See, she's going to say, hey, in the final, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. I thought the grass was greener on the other side of the fence, but it isn't. I'm going to go back to my husband. God tried to stop her, look at it, in verse 6, but she continued to seek her companions in sin, in verse 7. Hosea would take her back in loving forgiveness, and they would try it all over again. But her repentance would be only for a short time, and she would go after again. That's the same way Israel did in the times of the judgment. They sinned, they confessed, God forgive, they sinned, they confessed, God forgave, and you enter that cycle. That's what's happening here. And so in verse 6, the Lord promises or proposes to put a hedge of thorns around his unfaithful wife. Now these thorns are sharp. They are meant and designed to hurt. But it was for her own good. And sometimes God does that to an unfaithful spouse. He does. He causes things to happen in their lives that hurt them in an attempt to prevent them from going on after their, after their lovers. But it's for their own good. Is a principle here I think we need to be reminded of. God sometimes brings, and I think it was mentioned tonight, God sometimes brings difficulties in our lives to drive us back to himself, to bring us closer to himself. God does that. And that was mentioned tonight. And so it's our response to difficulties that make the difference, not the difficulties themselves. This scene here, where God used these difficult things in order to bring her back to himself. God works behind the scenes to show his love for us even when we sin. This happens in Hosea's case in Gomer's. Notice verse 8. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. If you read the story, and you don't have time to read all of it, you'll find that uh, Hosea got word that uh, things weren't going too well for Gomo with this new man that she had taken up with. And so Gomo actually went looking for the man. And Gomo gave the man money everything he needed to take care of his unfaithful wife. Goma didn't know that. She thought this man was given, that was taking care of him, given the food and all of it, but it was Hosea who was doing it. This is referring to a God working behind the scene, even in times when we are unfaithful. But what is he, why is he doing it? To show his love. There's always grace in the midst of judgment. Always. That's why I say to you, in all your difficult times, in all your times of tragedy, look for the ray of grace. Grace is always present when there's problems, when there's troubles, when there's difficulties. There's never a time that's not true. Because God is always working behind the scene. Verse 9, Therefore I will take back my grain at harvest time, and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. He says, well, even in spite of that, if she doesn't respond to my love, then I will have to continue to bring discipline. Here is the principle. Repeated transgressions and unfaithfulness call for repeated discipline. Now, this has to do in the context also of a husband-wife relationship. Unfaithfulness always brings judgment in God's time. Now, sometimes you wish God would judge the unfaithful spouse right away. 
but he doesn't do that all the time. He blesses, hoping that that unfaithful spouse will come back. If he or she doesn't, then God again resumes time of judgment. Listen again to the word of God then in verse 10. Then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. In other words, her discipline will be completed. I will also put an end to all of her gaiety, all of the fun that they think that she thinks she was having. Her feasts and new moons, her sabbaths, and all her festival assemblies. I'm going to stop it all. I'm going to take everything that gave joy. I'm going to remove it. Since you didn't respond to the love and the grace that I demonstrated towards you even in the midst of your sin. He goes on. He says, verse 12, And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees. These are signs of blessings. Of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. See that? She didn't realize it was God. And I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field will devour them. He's just saying, I'm going to remove my hand of blessing that I was hoping would bring her to myself, and I will continue to bring discipline in her life. Verse 13, And I will punish her for the days of Baals, when she used to offer sacrifices to them, and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry, and follow her lovers, so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. This is the person who is in involved, deeply involved with the high lifestyle, if you want, the good life, and forgetting God, forgetting her true lover, as it were. This is what is happening here. Paul sort of alludes to this to the, uh, in, in the New Testament in Timothy when he talks about the young, the widow, uh, the widows who, uh, who uh, will live as, how does it go? He says, she lives, she's dead even as she lives because of the kind of lifestyle she goes back into living in sin. And this is the same thing that is happening here. Notice that one of the sins of Israel was that of ingratitude. They were not thankful for what God has done. And that's why I'm so glad tonight to hear so many people, and like Brenda, emphasizing the fact that God is a good God. Amen? And he continues to give. One of the major sins of Israel was the sin of ingratitude. Do you know what one of the, the major sins in the book of Romans um, um, that is focused upon when we talked about the pagans leaving God? Unthankfulness. They did not thank God. That's a major sin. Jesus alludes to it. Cured ten people. One came back. Remember his question? We are the nine. He is looking for thanks and gratitude. For what he's doing. Right? So somewhere along the line, the people of Israel had forgotten that it was the Lord who had provided the prosperity of the land. And as a result, he would begin to bring about economic hardships because of this sin. And so in Hosea 3 now, we see the final chapter in Hosea's family life. It is here that we see Hosea being told by the Lord to go back to his wife. After all of this, notice what he says. Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet she is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. This was an offering to the gods. 
So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. You see, Gomer had fallen so low now, so destitute, the lovers had left her. She had nothing and she became a slave. And she was on a slave block being put up for sale. And who goes to buy her? Hosea. Hosea was still showing sacrificial love. Then I said to her, verse 3, you shall stay with me for many days. In other words, you ain't going to go nowhere at this house. That's what he's saying. You ain't going to go nowhere. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be towards you. He's just saying, I'm going to keep you in this house. You're not going to go anywhere. You're not going to have the kind of freedom that you had. So Hosea goes out to find his faithless bride. He finds her as a slave and purchases her for himself from the slave market. That's what God did for us. That's what redemption is, to be purchased from the slave market of sin. We were put on the block and Christ bought us with his blood. He brings her home where he can command her future faithfulness. This is the picture of what the Lord will do with his people. And so we cannot escape the message of his undying love. Hosea wanted to see Gomer restored to his side as his faithful bride. God wants to see sinning Christians restored. That's why when we were talking about discipline in the First Corinthians chapter 4, the purpose of discipline is not to punish. The purpose of discipline is to restore. And that's what God is showing in the life of Gomer as well. God could not give Israel up. And then God spoke to Hosea. Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband. That's him. Yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the son of Israel, though they turn to other gods. Gomer was still Hosea's beloved, even though she was an adulteress. And God wanted him to seek her out and prove his love to her. Now there's a question here. How could anyone love someone that deeply? to be used in such a fashion. How could someone love to that extent? The answer is right here in Hosea, I believe. Notice it says that you are to love her even as the Lord loves. You see that? Even as the Lord loves. That's the kind of love husbands are to have towards their wives. To love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for even as Christ loved. That's the same picture here. Only one who knows the love and forgiveness of God can ever love like this. And the one who has experienced God's loving forgiveness cannot help but to love and forgive others. Jesus teaches the same thing. We can only forgive because we've experienced forgiveness from God. That's what Jesus teaches in this prayer. Didn't he say? Forgive us our debtors how? As we forgive those who sinned against us. And he goes further. He says, if you don't forgive, I won't forgive you. We can only forgive like this by the grace of God. Someone who's experienced the loving forgiveness cannot help but love and to forgive others. Christian husbands then are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And Hosea is an outstanding biblical example 
of this kind of love, the kind of love that God has for Israel, the kind of love God has for his bride, the kind of love Jesus Christ has for us, and that's the kind of love husbands are to have for their wives. However, forgiveness means that we will pay for the other person's faithlessness, unfaithfulness, and that's where the rubber hits the road here. The one who pays really is not the unfaithful one, but the faithful one. Notice what it says. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Who paid the money? It was Gomer. See, that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is saying, you owe me, but I'm going to pay the bill. Now, we don't like that part of forgiveness, but that's what it is. Forgiveness means that I will take all the pain and all the hurt that you have demonstrated toward me, and I will take that upon myself and free you from it. We don't like that side of forgiveness, but that's what it is. Paying the debt owed to me by someone myself. That's what Jesus did. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness means that we will pay for the other person's unfaithfulness. We will refuse to retaliate in a way to make the guilty person pay. Whenever we demand that a guilty person pay, and then we said we'll forgive, that's not forgiveness. That's not forgiveness. We can only forgive when we absolve the person of all guilt for sin done towards us. God can use that forgiving love to melt hardened hearts and change callous lives quicker than anything else in this world. That's why Jesus says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. How? If you love one another. We're talking about that evangelism today. Love is the greatest evangelistic tool that you could use. You could give all the food, you could give all the money, you could give all the tracts out. But if you don't do it with a heart of love, it's no good. But sometimes you don't have to give anything else but love. And that will win a person. This is what is demonstrated here in the life of Gomer and Hosea. God hates sin. I want you to understand that now. Sin grieves his heart. He cannot and does not condone sin. His perfect righteousness and judgment demands that he deal with sin, that he judges sin. But he still loves the sinner. He still loves the sinner. And God diligently seeks out the sinner and offers the sinner his loving forgiveness when they return to him. That's always God's position. And that's what's demonstrated in the book of Hosea as well. God's unrelenting love for the sinner, even when the sinner refuses to return. And God stays after him. One writer called the Holy Spirit, the hound of heaven. Because you know, a hound is used by the police for sent to go after a person. And they could find a person no matter where they are. That's the Holy Spirit. He goes after you. He goes after you and you sin. And he wants to bring you back. That's the story we have here in the book of Hosea. Now, he gives, and I'll stop with this for the night, he gives us another vision of what he's going to do. 
He says in chapter 3, For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without effort or household idols. This had to do with things that they worshipped. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. God says, you can come back. It's not going to be right now, but you're coming back, and I'm going to be after you. First Israel and then Judah was taken into captivity. That's discipline. When the final return took place in the days of Zerubbabel and Ezra, the Jews never again went aside to worship the four gods of the Canaanite. They never went back to idolatry after that. Now notice though in verse 5, the promise that the people would return to David their king. Now this has special significance when we consider the fact that this is addressed to the northern ten tribes that had rejected the king, rejected David and his descendants. It is a prophecy that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who is the son of David. He will be the ones to bring all of the rebellious, disobedient people of God, Israel, back to God. Isaiah 53 describes when it will happen and how it will happen. And they will turn and see who Jesus was and how he took their sins in his own body on the tree. That's when the repentance will take place. God's love, God's love for his rebellious, harlot-type people will extend on and on and on until all of Israel will be saved. That's with Israel. The same thing is with us. God goes after us relentlessly even when we sin because of his great love. But you and I, when we are disobedient, will be disciplined. We will feel the thorns. We will run against the wall that he puts around us to try to keep us to himself. We will be disciplined, but God is doing it, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. We're going to stop here for the night, and we pick it up next time, Lord willing.